Okay, brethren, we're blessed for our, to have our second message for today, brought to us by uh, Mr. Curtis Whiteley, entitled, Blessed are the Peacemakers. Well, good afternoon. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, his, for his fifth chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, we read, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, then he opened his mouth and taught them. Now we know that this is the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, where Jesus begins to expound on many different things. Uh, some of those are old ideas about the true meaning of the law and things like that. We know that Jesus talks about different laws and he talks about how they've maybe been misunderstood and the spiritual intent of those laws, how they were maybe misunderstood. And he also talks about kingdom attitudes. And we famously, right after this, in Matthew, the fifth chapter, after these first few verses, starting in verse 3, we see that there's a section in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount that we call the Beatitudes, which comes from the Latin word that means beatus, which is also associated with the Greek word blessed or makarios, which refers to someone who is in a happy condition. Therefore, when we look at this, we know we've read this many times, that we see that Jesus gives a characteristic and calls a person or the person who exhibits whatever particular attitude that he's referring to, whether it be the poor in spirit or the ones who mourn or the meek or those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we know that Jesus calls this person as blessed, someone who is happy or fortunate. I want to look at that verse 9, though. That's the title of this message as... Matthew, and then the bulletin, as you see, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, you might be wondering, why did you pick that one? You know, we, there's so many of them. Why don't you start with the first one and work your way down? And I just thought, this week I was just thinking about, man, peace is something that seems to be hard to come by these days. You know, we look around in the world in so many different levels, and we see that there's, I mean, obviously it's not that necessarily in 2020, 2019, just now in this present time, there's, it's just, this isn't the only time that there's been war and strife, but with social media, with news outlets, with things like that, it just seems like we're just inundated with strife. To the point where I think that as Christians, sometimes we can almost get frustrated and be like, what's the point? What's the point of trying to make any difference? No one listens, everyone yells at each other, everyone just wants to argue. What are we going to do about something going on in the Middle East? Or what are we going to do about strife between you know, situations even here domestically? What, what possible effect could we have? What power do we really have? If you were to look at the background of, obviously, the New Testament times, we know that Jesus is here, and this is kind of seems to be somewhat in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that in the context here, that Jesus, when he spoke these words, that there's no doubt that the people who were in Jesus' audience longed for peace themselves. 
you know, they, you, you could argue that, well, they were under the Roman Empire, and Roman, Rome during this time was brought law and order, brought about peace. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's the case for every different people group living within the boundaries of those who lived within their empire or the auspices of the empire. The Roman Empire had full jurisdiction over this area during this period of the first century and we know that there was a client king, his name was Herod, Herod the Great, Jesus' birth, Herod's out killing firstborn, he's someone that the Jews loathe and hate because of, you know, he's, he's a ruthless king uh, and, and doesn't really care much for the Jews or for people and even after he, he died, his sons himself uh, took over. We also know that the expectation or the key in the minds of people that Jesus was listening to, the key to peace in their minds, Jews during this period of time, was the warrior Messiah they were looking for. Who was going to come and put down the Roman occupiers and reestablish that sovereign, independent, and united kingdom of Israel. Now although they might have misunderstood the timing of this and maybe other aspects of this. We have a similarity to these individuals that were hearing Jesus' words on this day when he spoke them during the times of the New Testament because we too also are expecting the same thing. We might understand the first coming and the second coming, but we here today are here because Jesus came to this earth, died for us. We accepted that sacrifice in place of our sins and we're looking to the future kingdom of God when he does come back and he does establish peace on this earth. So let me just reread that and we're going to kind of look at exactly what is a peacemaker and what does it mean to be called the son of God or a child of God? It says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And a peacemaker, literally someone who makes peace and actively works to bring peace and reconciliation where there is hostility, strife, and division. And as Christians, that's what we're called to do. We're called to exhibit that in just in this life and in, in, in our relationships, to promote reconciliation, to promote peace. And the characteristics that God calls us to embody, which are Christ-like characteristics, helps us in doing this. But in a spiritual level, at the spiritual, the heart of being a follower of Christ, we see that we are to bring people to Christ and help them by being a mechanism where people turn to God and are reconciled to Him. We know that there's this enmity between God and mankind. And God wants us to be a mediator of that peace-making reconciliation between man and God. We know that we're not the ones calling people. God's the one calling people. But God's called us to be mediators, to be tools, to be vessels for Him. Peace is also, being a peacemaker is also a characteristic of holiness as we read, or we, you can read in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And I think all of us in here would like to see more peace on this earth. And that's the ultimate goal, right? We see Christ comes back and the passages about the coming kingdom, about how the main thing that we will see on this earth, that will cover this earth, will be the peace of God. 
Now this beatitude here, as it always does, it tells us this characteristic, if you exhibit this, you'll be this, you'll get this, you'll be blessed with this. And those who are peacemakers will be called sons or children of God. And we know that all of these different beatitudes exhibit just different characteristic that, characteristics that God wants us to embody, that Christ embodies. It's not that we pick one and say, this one's better than the others. They're all together. Just kind of encapsulate the nature of Christ. Well, let's just think about what that means to be a child of God. We, we hear it so often, sometimes I think that we forget. What does it mean? I mean, obviously it does mean that God's our Father, that He loves us. But it also means that being the child of someone means that you are going to be a part of that person's, and in this case, God's nature. A part of God's nature we know is peacemaking. As that's what he's bringing to this earth. Let's just think about the illustration of children for a minute. There are three ways that we can say that, you know, that children resemble their parents. It's common to hear people say things like, you know, you have your mother's ears, or you have your mother's eyes, or your father's nose. And as parents, our children typically also not only resemble us in a physical way, but they also resemble us sometimes in personality traits. As my wife likes to remind me every time my child or my children does something wrong. A third way that our children resemble us is in habits and ways of thinking. You know, the way we act, the way that we think, and obviously we, the way we go about acting, which is driven by the way we think, our mindsets, as we raise them, we teach them by our actions and words how to act. Hopefully. And hopefully we're doing a good job, and I think most of us that are parents can probably say, sometimes we don't maybe do the best job. You know, we're not, we're not God the Father, who's the perfect parent, uh, but we are subject to, to failure. We're subject to weaknesses and, and times where maybe we didn't exhibit the best behavior or s exhibit the best speech. And the thing about children, as we know, they live with us, right? I mean, it's hard to get away from them. So they see you day in, day out, and that's something that over time, kind of oftentimes, gets molded onto them, our behaviors, our ways of thinking, our ways of talking. But if we think about this, God's our Father, and we know that, Later on in this same section of Scripture, just the same chapter of Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 43 through 48, we want to ask the question, what's the characteristics of God's children? Well, He gives it to us. Because we can look all throughout this first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus tells us to love our enemies, to bless those who curse them, to do good to those who hate them, to pray for those that use and persecute them. Those are characteristics that you're not going to get from the world. Those are characteristics that are not going to be necessarily common sense, worldly thinking. But they're characteristics of the righteous judge of this earth. They're different than what typically people would probably suggest you to be. As the nature of God, of course, continues in us, as we have that spirit, we're supposed to take on more and more of those inclinations. Where that's 
the second nature of us, that, that we, that's what we want to do. That's our response. And of course, I think all of us can probably look at this and say, yep, I probably failed at this a few times. I can tell you this, and this is, I mean, I, I don't have any problem admitting it. I haven't always loved my enemies. I can't necessarily think of enemies per se. I mean, enemies can be very general. It's not like we have an enemy like maybe they did. There's actually someone who is wanting to, to, to maybe, maybe we haven't been in war or anything like that. But, I mean, enemies can be a general term that we use to describe someone who's at odds with us. I haven't always blessed those who cursed me. I haven't always... Done good, those, done good to those who have hated me. And I definitely haven't always prayed for those who I thought persecuted me or wronged me or did something that was not right to me. But these inclinations, all of them, are bent on that idea of peace, and that is reconciliation, restoration. A bent toward restoring a right relationship with God and in turn having that view that behavior, that mindset, that attitude towards how we deal with our fellow man. Now we know that in the first two comings of Jesus, that there's two different things that we can say that God, his, his goal was. One of them, both of them really are, have to do with peace and peacemaking. The first one, as we just kind of already alluded to, he came to pave the way by which humans can come back into a peaceful relationship with him. And also in doing that, how humans can be reconciled to each other. As we see that model that God demonstrates to us, as Christ basically makes it possible for us to be back in a right standing relationship with God. But in the second coming, we also see peace. We also see how that restoration is still at the forefront of the plan of God, even in the second coming. Let's go to Isaiah, the ninth chapter, to a passage we've all read before. Isaiah, the ninth chapter. Very famous passage. It's a prophecy. In verse 6 of Isaiah, the ninth chapter, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end, and upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order and establish it with judgment and justice from, the time, from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And we all long for that day. We long for that time to come. Because we know that the world today doesn't exhibit a world of peace. It's the opposite. It's a world of strife. And that's what seems to be the natural order's key characteristic. We can look at war, murder, stealing, racial division seeming to be at an all-time high. Hostility, it seems, in every arena, whether it be politics, sports even. We see this opposite nature of peace abound. And people have all different reasons, right, why this is the case. Why is there so much strife? Why is there so much war? Why is there so much hostility? I mean, people blame politics. They, they, they blame, you know, different, essentially, like, different policies that are political and things like that. Some argue it's economics and 
economic inequality. You know, it's inevitable. It's an inevitable social condition. It's religion. Sometimes people blame religion as why there's all these problems in the world. It's big businesses and corporations. It's poverty. It's education. All of these are examples of things that people like to bring out as possible reasons why there is not peace in this world. And of course, what humans do is they always point towards a solution, but they kind of miss the mark. Because if you listen to people today, what the solution is, is pass this law, elect this person, start this initiative. But we know that the, the, the core symptom, or we're trying to treat the symptom, not the problem. And we understand that this is a human nature problem. And it has to do with a human nature problem that's at odds with the nature of God. And we know that this is unfortunately just demonstrated in the world. I mean, we can sit here all day and talk about how there's not peace in the world, but even within the church sometimes, there's not always necessarily the best, uh, I guess you could say, the, the best peaceful relationships. And we'll get to that in a minute, but I also want to talk about, I kind of skipped over something. So, uh, not even at nations at war or political, geopolitical issues or social issues at home, but even just, we can probably even see this just among like, you know, ordinary people. Maybe we're friends with them. And I'm saying this because of like social media. You know, maybe you're on social media, maybe you're not. And so there's nothing, I'm not going to make a comment one way or the other, but one thing we all do know is that people, because of social media, have a brand new avenue to be able to argue with each other to debate each other, to cut each other down, to be host, hostile to each other. And it was reminding me of this, this sermon I came across. It was like a sermon outline or, or manuscript that was uh, a guy by the name of David Anderson. I think he's a pastor or minister. I don't know if he's still in a church, I think, in Minnesota or something like that. Basically, is a website that uh, uses a lot of the resources, and they have different uh, commentaries and little particles on different parts of scripture and different Christian topics and he was just talking and discussing uh, this very beatitude the, the beatitude of bless the peacemakers and he talked about in this he uses illustration of this friend visiting a farm and his friend noticed that all of these chickens had missing feathers and open sores and when this friend asked why this was so the farmer replied that they, they just like to peck at one another and I thought, man, that, that's such an illustration of human nature, is it not? It's an illustration of how humans, how we as humans sometimes, the inclination that we just have to kind of pick at each other. You know, even sometimes with our closest relationships, we oftentimes, we, we like to criticize. We like to find the faults. Even when we don't want to, sometimes that comes out. Now, this could be like in a marriage, you know, with you and kids, you and friends, people you work with, all different ways that we could see this demonstrated. And going to what I was getting ready to say just a minute ago, even division within the church, even the lack of peace sometimes exhibits, is exhibited in church. And this goes back all the way to the beginning. I'm not just talking about here in 2020, almost, I'm still trying to train myself to say 2020, but even in the first century, the very beginning, we see as like Corinthians, we see that these people are like, I'm of Apollos or I'm of Paul. We see division abound. You know, 
This reminds me of this uh, story I heard. You've probably heard it before. And it's really about religion and it's about church and about how sometimes we have a history and we understand where people might get unhappy with certain things at a church and they might not go there anymore. And sometimes I think it can become a habit. It can become just like a way of church life where there's a church, you go to it for a little while, then you find something you don't like and you go to another one. Or a church establishes itself, they all get along well, and then eventually some disagreement happens. You know, the important topic of what color to put the car, what, what uh, color the carpet should be, and then they, 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 they part themselves. And I was thinking of this, uh, and there's this story, and maybe you've heard it before, this individual who was stranded on this desolate, desolate island. I mean, no, it's like, kind of like the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. And this individual, he was there for several years. No one else, no other human being was on that island. But when rescuers finally found him on this island, they noticed that there were three huts. One hut, the guy said, this is the hut I live in. The second hut, he pointed out, he said, that's the hut I go to church, I go to church at. And they asked him, well, what's the third hut for? He said, well, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's a joke, it's a, it's a sarcasm, but it's illustrating that even on this island, this man found a way why he didn't like that church and why he was going to leave that church and go to another one. And, of course, there are reasons why sometimes, and it has nothing to do. It's, ne it's not necessarily a bad thing. There's people that come here sometimes, and they might uh, visit us, and then they go somewhere else, and that's totally fine. But I'm talking about, obviously, divisions within church where there's strife that's causing these separations. And we've seen that, unfortunately, take place. I now want to transition a little bit. I want us to go to Colossians, the third chapter which is where I'm primarily going to get our main points from today. Colossians, the third chapter. And thinking of this theme of peacemaking and this idea of embodying a peacemaking nature, I want us to look at Colossians, the third chapter, verse 12 through 17, and just see what Paul has to say about the new nature we are supposed to put on. And we've heard this before, and you know, Paul's discussed this idea in this chapter of Colossians, this idea of an old man being put away, and for us to put away our old man, and for us to put on the new man, the new man that is risen with Christ, which brings with it a new nature, a new attitude, a new disposition. Of course, this comes with the Holy Spirit empowering us. I just want to pick it up here in verse 12 of Colossians, the third chapter, 12 through 17, it says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so I have three main points today. Three main points that kind of build on each other. And the first one just kind of straight comes from what Colossians tells us, and that is embody the Christ-like characteristics that Paul just outlined right here. 
You know, one of the things that Paul calls us in this section is the elect of God. The elect of God. In the ESV, the English Standard Version, says the chosen ones. And this term that Paul is using here, he uses it in other places in his letters, as well as a term that Jesus uses to describe his followers as well. And if you really think about it, it's kind of a wow moment. We kind of can read over it and be like, oh, we've heard that before. But it's, 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 it's like on par with that being a child of God. Being considered the elect of God, chosen, that God chose you. That he, he chose you. That he called you out. That you're one of the chosen ones. You're special to him. And that doesn't mean that God loves us and he doesn't love other people as much. That's not what I'm saying. But God has chosen us to be a part of that elect of God. All of those who wants to call in the name of Christ and, and, and be spirit, truly, genuinely, spiritually transformed by the Spirit of God. He also uses the descriptions of holy and beloved. And just before these passages, as I mentioned, Paul talks about this idea of putting off the old man. And those who have now been raised with Christ and reconciled to God must live a holy life. Now, that old man stuff is a little harder than it sounds, isn't it? Because sometimes that old man does want to creep back up in our life. The way that Paul uses these words is to get his readers to understand that they must set their minds on the things above. On the things above where Christ dwells as opposed to the things of the earth. You know, earthly characteristics are embodied by the old man. We, we can think about those characteristics of the old man. Of what Paul kind of gets to. You know, the self-centeredness that's sometimes in the nature of humans. You know, lying, anger, wrath, covetousness. All of those are examples of the nature, the characteristics of the old man. But the new man embodies these different characteristics. These characteristics that are bent on the mind of Christ, the nature of Christ, the characteristics of Christ. And Paul lists them here for us. The elect characteristics, we can just look through them, are tender mercies. And Paul talks about, you know, better translated as compassion, which goes along with the idea of peacemaking and showing sensitivity towards others, especially those in need or who are suffering. And how much compassion do we have in our life for people sometimes we don't even know. Sometimes people who might inconvenience us. Those are one of the characteristics that Paul lists here. The other one, they all go together, but the other one is kindness. Having a sweet and thoughtful attitude and demeanor in our interpersonal dealings. Being kind, being gentle, being soft with someone. Even when we may disagree. Even maybe when we don't understand fully or we're, we're, not, we're not, you know, Seeing eye to eye on a particular topic. Host, uh, humility. The opposite of haughtiness. It means to have a realistic view of oneself. Our imperfections. And inability to meet specific standards. And in turn, not quick to take credit. But to be humble. Understanding of who we truly are. The humility. You know, we think about humility and examples of humility. And we... We can understand that we're sinners, but just think about Jesus Christ. Although he was sinless, he actually humbled himself to the point of death, to a terrible death, to a horrible death that you know was was 
given to basically the worst criminals of the day, crucifixion. So in light of that, there's no other excuse but for us, ones that aren't worthy but still have received the grace of God to be humble. Meekness, not behaving harshly, arrogantly, or self-assertly, but acting in gentleness, going back to that idea of being compassionate. In fact, when we look at the word meekness, when you look at kind of some of the history behind it, it's kind of like someone who's you know, quick to forgive and the idea basically is waiving one's rights. You know, someone does something to you and you, know, you have all the, 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 the right to get mad at them and get frustrated with them, but you, you suppress that and you're willing to extend meekness to them. Actively choosing not to pounce on someone who, do, who has done possible wrong to you, but instead meeting an offense with gentleness that only comes through having a Christ-like attitude. This characteristic leads into the next one, which is long-suffering. You have to have all of these to be long-suffering with someone. The ability to forbear each other. In other words, the ability to be patient with one another and people that we are dealing with, especially in cases of negativity. In cases where maybe the person that you're dealing with, whether it be, I mean, it can be family relations, it can be friends, it can be co-workers, but long-suffering them in whatever situation that you're in. Even if they're slowing you down, you're trying to get something done. Maybe it's long-suffering your children that maybe aren't acting the best. I know this is something I have to practice. I'm sure many of us who are parents have to practice as well. Simply put, it's an attitude and disposition that does not seek revenge or rage, but like the idea of meekness, is gentle even in times of wrong being done to us. Now if we look at the characteristics at work, let's just think about Christ himself, bearing and forgiving as Christ has done for us. We look at all these characteristics, we're bearing with people, we're forgiving, we're long-suffering, Let's just think back to that wow moment. You know, we're called the elect of God. We're called children of God. But just think about how much God had to forbear with us. How much he had to put up with and still has to put up with us. It's the greatest display of God's grace, I think. When, I mean, obviously, we know that the greatest display is in terms of, you know, the, the whole, the Christ was crucified for us. But think about who us is, ourselves, you know, everyone. The unworthiness and how, you know, in a nutshell, I always think back about this, this, this uh, you know, that, the time where Peter, he's looking at Jesus. Jesus is arrested, Sanhedrin's getting ready to put him on trial and question him. And, of course, he, you know, he, he looks, looks at Jesus. He's trying to find out what's going on. And then someone grabs him and says, Oh, I know, you're with this guy. You're with this, this criminal right here that we're questioning. This Jesus. He's like, I don't know the man. And he runs off. And the reason I'm bringing that up, because it, it, I've always thought that, like, that instance right there is an example. We were all present with Peter there in that moment in time. I'm, I'm talking metaphorical. But in our actions, and our lifestyles, at one point, we all were rejectors of Christ. We were all sinners. We were all not worthy. But still, nevertheless, knowing this, Christ going into this, knowing this, still died for us. Still died for us. Now we know that the key ingredient to this is what Paul says. 
love, which he calls the bond of perfection. Love is the bond that makes these characteristics possible. It's the key ingredient, and it's why God has called his children, because he loves us. And this is why Paul calls it the bond of perfection. Love is the bond of perfection. True and godly love cannot be broken. Christ loves us, the Father loves us, and that cannot be changed. That cannot be changed. As Paul told us, we are the elect of God who are the beloved. And so when it brings out the idea of how do we do this, it's all about love. Love's the, what, what enables us. Love through the Holy Spirit is what enables us. Because trying to do this without love is just a fabrication. A person can only fabricate these characteristics so long. Have you ever tried to do something you really, your heart's not into? You might be able to do it a couple times, but you know, say you have to do it every day. I mean, after a while, it's going to be very difficult to do that. And I'm not saying that even when you have love, you're just automatically going to do everything and it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that. But without love, these characteristics, they're not genuine. And they will not last. And we, it's, 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 it's love that allows us to be reconciled to God and for us to be reconciled to the world or to, to each other. Now, the second characteristic, or the second main point, rather, is something that we have to do. It's the second step of the same thing. Embody Christ in your hearts. Embody Christ in your hearts. Paul says something really interesting here. He uses this idea of rule of peace. This phrase, let the peace, this is in verse 15 and 16, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, and it has an interesting meaning. Because this Greek word, this Greek term, is used, I kind of looked this up, it's used to describe the idea of a judge or like an umpire. And maybe you've heard, you know, a competition, you have an umpire, you have a referee, someone who is basically officiating over a competition. And right here, the idea of peace that Paul's talking about, this rule of peace that he has in mind, he's talking about in terms of possible disputes that may arise within the body of Christ. In other words, Paul is telling believers that when a dispute arises between those within the body of Christ, to let our rule, our judging, be done in a manner that maintains or restores peace. That the peace of God is the driving force. It's, what's, it's basically it's the judge, it's the rule. It's, it's, we're looking for the solution that brings about peace which is a characteristic of God. It's going to be something that's what God's going to, going to want. It's going to be within his will. Quite simply, make the decision of a peacemaker. Literally, it's an exhortation for us to allow Christ to be present in our hearts. Christ to be present in our hearts. Are, you know, if you think about it, going back to what we just talked about, the, 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 bond, the, perfect, the bond of perfection, Christ being present in our hearts is what's going to drive us to have our will be inclined to him, our thoughts, our emotions, our judgments, based upon that idea of the rule of peace. And he goes on and he talks about this idea of being in one body. Paul tells us that our calling was one into unity of the body. One into unity 
of the body. Christ is established as the elect within this body and in a unified way. Now it's interesting because I I grew up in this church. And obviously we're not the only ones a part of that body of Christ. But right here, when he talks about this idea of one body, it shows us, and we know this, that God has one truth. And that one body can be in Africa, it can be in Oklahoma, it can be in Wisconsin, it can be in Australia, it can be everywhere. But that one body that we, that we are mechanisms in is true. All of us together, everyone here, when we hear things about something going on, one of us, or brethren, that maybe we don't get to see, it hurts our hearts. It's a family. And we understand that that's ultimately what God's trying to do. He's trying to build this family, this children of God, which is after the nature of Christ, which is after the nature, of course, of God. He's using the characteristics of himself and he's reproducing himself in us. That's the ultimate goal. And so when we look and think about this idea of one body, it's not just about that we're always just going to be perfect. Sometimes family argues. Sometimes we don't have agreements on things. But in the end, because of love, because the Holy Spirit is buried within our hearts, that's what enables us always, the greater picture, to be able to come back and still trek on towards the kingdom of God. So the reason I wanted to bring that up is because I don't want us to think that well, we're failing if we never, you know, if we ever maybe still see things eye to eye and things like that. There's going to be times that that's the case. But we know that Christ in our hearts, that love in our hearts, that rule of law, that rule of, of, that, of peace, rather, excuse me, is what's going to drive us to always want to continue in that unified body. To, to, to have, a, I guess you could say, to be inclined to stay in a unified state. And I mean unified in, in Christ, in moving forward towards the kingdom. And having this rule, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another and in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is a description of the entire gospel message if we think about it, which dictates all that we do and in turn results in the outpouring of true from the heart worship towards God as well as the righteous interaction that we have with one another. The third main point, the last one, the last one, real quick, embody Christ in all your actions. Despite the kingdom not being here, ruling the earth presently, we must make sure that all our actions, deeds, and words reflect this coming kingdom. And we've heard this before. We know that we don't live in the kingdom of God per se. Christ isn't necessarily physically ruling here. But we live a life as if we're in the kingdom. You know how it talks about being ambassadors to Christ? We hear that. uh, But Paul talks about this idea, and we've talked about that, what an ambassador is. We have our own ambassadors. Ambassadors to different countries. And so when the ambassador of the United States 
goes to China or goes to the United Kingdom or goes to somewhere in Russia or Germany, they don't quit being a citizen of the United States. They don't say, well, the Constitution doesn't apply to me anymore. U.S. law doesn't apply to me anymore. U.S. culture or customs or ways of things doesn't apply to me anymore. But they're, they're a citizen of the United States, and all those things that go with being a citizen of the United States still completely apply to them. Now, obviously, the same could be said for the kingdom of God. We're ambassadors for Christ, for the kingdom, for the soon-coming kingdom. We're ambassadors for the king. We don't have perfection yet. We don't have, you know, we're not spiritual beings yet. But nevertheless, we are to be ruled by kingdom principles. And that's what Jesus is getting at here on the Sermon on the Mount, in the very beginning, in these Beatitudes. Paul is telling us, allow our actions to embody and resemble the transformation that has taken place within us. And this is done by and through embodying a peacemaker nature to exhibit the characteristics of the new man that Paul here presents to us. And so, going back to that question I asked at the very beginning, when we're thinking about this, you know, it's easy sometimes to give up. Like we don't have much influence in this world. And maybe some of us have more influence than others. Maybe, you know, some of us have the ability to bring about a little bit more peace than others do. Just from different circumstances, things that, different circumstances that God puts, puts us in. But I think that it's important to note that right after that, these Beatitudes, Christ says something also that's really important. And we've heard before, that we're the salt of the earth. The light of the world. And that tells me, if Christ says that to us, then that says that we can be difference makers. It's not us making the difference. It's, it's God working through us. And so, I've never been one to be huge into prophecy. I believe in it. Uh, I believe in the words of Christ. I believe in the words of every word in this book. And I know that things are coming, and I don't know when they are. But in light of what's going on in the world, and of course we could have said the same thing ten years ago because there was strife and division during that time as well. Just be mindful that as things continue, that it's possible that people that you know might be asking you questions. They might be asking, you know, they, they might be having discussions with, you know, what in the world's going on? What in the world's happening? We don't know what befalls us in, in the coming years. We don't know what's going to happen in the coming years. But with that in mind, just understand that you as an individual that is a spirit-led with God's Holy Spirit, follower of Jesus Christ, you can be a mechanism to bring about peace on this earth. Maybe that peace has to do between God and someone else. Maybe God's calling someone between you. And there's, there's obviously, as the scripture tells us, that there's this enmity between man and God. And God wants to be reconciled to people that he's calling, to individuals that are accepting Christ's call. And maybe you might be a facilitator of that peacemaking relationship. And I mean peacemaking by the, peacemaking, the, the peace that's going to take place between God and that individual, but also in our daily lives. So in conclusion, strive to be peacemakers. To be people who want to be mediators of people, of reconciliation. 
Reconciliation of man between God and man. Reconciliation between fellow brethren. Reconciliation between fellow neighbors. Strive to embody the characteristics of Christ. And to embody Christ in our hearts. And to demonstrate a kingdom nature. One that has been on reconciliation. Reconciling, uh, reconciling the world to God. Just as Christ has done for all of us.